You're listening to Cancer Covered. Here at Green Bay Oncology, there is one patient request we just can't meet. Seeing only one doctor, the same one, all the time. You're probably thinking, isn't that bad care? Well, have you ever considered that one doctor, one patient might not really be the very best way to care for cancer patients in the first place? If you work in healthcare or another service industry, you already know that nothing can ever be quite perfect. So responding to concerns is a basic part of the job, and the concern cycle is actually a valuable part of how we all improve. We do our best. We listen to feedback about where things came up short. We regroup, and then we try again. We keep trying to satisfy our patient, most of the time. But sometimes, people ask us for something we can never give them. Maybe what they're asking for simply isn't possible. Maybe what they think they want isn't what they actually need. If we consciously decide there's a patient request we can't or shouldn't meet, what then? In today's episode, we'll discuss how to deal with one of the most common questions we get. Which one of you is my doctor? You're listening to Cancer Covered with Green Bay Oncology where we explore pressing cancer issues and look for ways healthcare professionals, patients, and their families can cope better together. I'm Dr. Mitch Winkler. Well, I'm here today with Dr. Brian Burnett and Dr. Matthew Ryan, who have agreed to join us. Gentlemen, glad to have you here. Good to see you as always. You know, when patients come to a cancer clinic, I think they typically expect something similar to what they've gotten in primary care. That's periodic visits over usually longer spans of time, most commonly with the same provider. But primary care has some really big differences that make it a terrible comparison with cancer care. Primary care is episodic and infrequent, usually under very controlled circumstances. Primary care patients tend to be not medically very volatile for the most part. That's a set of circumstances that makes it much more practical for patients to be scheduled in more of a controlled fashion to be seen by the same provider more or less all the time. The difficulty is that cancer care is nothing like that. It's very understandable why people come into a cancer clinic for the first time and you know expect that it's going to be similar to what they've gotten in other places. But uh, their needs are so different, and you know I wonder if you all have any thoughts about that. Well, I think it is different, Mitch. Uh, when people come to the cancer clinic, num- number one, they don't know anything about cancer. And oftentimes that's a great thing because they haven't dealt with it. And the way in which we provide that care, it's different than primary care. You're right. Just like cancer is different than hypertension or diabetes. It's completely different. The way we deliver it by that very definition needs to be different too. If we think about what people are going to experience, we talked about primary care being primarily about prevention. Cancer care is usually about intervention. There's an acute pressing problem and people will have a concentrated series of visits over a, you know, a shorter span of time, perhaps three months, perhaps six months, sometimes longer. And you know they may be coming in for treatment once a week, once every two weeks, sometimes multiple times a week. Patients who have newly diagnosed cancer or who are being treated uh, will have unpredictable problems sometimes. And, you know, they may need to be seen uh, at a moment's notice, uh, sometimes the same day, uh, sometimes uh, in the middle of the night. And, you know, we, we have to have a way to be able to accommodate that. Uh, and I think Green Bay Oncology actually does a pretty good job accommodating that, but it's just not something 
that any single provider who is not available 24-7 can really fulfill face-to-face, same provider, one doctor, one patient. Yeah, it it takes a team to be available 24-7 to be there in the moment when these crises happen. Mm -hmm. Cancer medicine has unique demands that a single primary oncologist can never meet. But might a multiple provider team-based approach actually have advantages over the old one doctor, one patient model? Here's Dr. Burnett again. A couple of thoughts. First of all, I'd say, you know, our old care strategy, even in primary care with one doctor, one patient, I think it's a flawed strategy. Doctors have been rightly criticized for years for not policing ourselves, for not doing peer review, for not holding people accountable and weeding out the quote unquote bad apples. And in any field, some people struggle. And in this old paradigm of one patient, one doctor that's been pervasive for the history of medicine, um, we haven't did a good job with peer review and educating ourselves and policing ourselves. When you function as a care team, and I'm seeing a patient that one of my colleagues saw last time, and he may be seeing the patient again next time, I'm in real time evaluating his work that he's doing because I care about that patient in front of me, whether if, if I've seen that patient every time for the last year, or if he's seen the patient 30% of the time, I have 30% of the time and somebody else has 20% of the time and 20% of the time. We're evaluating each other every day and in a real sort of evaluation, not of filling out a survey that the hospital cell is sending you that's asking you if you like your colleague. Um, that's not the way to police ourselves. And that's not the way to make each other better. We do so when we work as teams and in real time, we're collaborating and trying to improve each and every patient's care in front of us. One doctor, one patient would seem to be... It's a uh, recipe for destruction. It's, mm-hmm. it's an opening for errors. Everybody is human. Everybody makes makes mistakes and doesn't know everything. And we need to realize that and rely on others to make us better. It's kind of the definition of a silo in a way, right? When we think about a silo, it's a person thinking and acting in isolation, you know, perhaps without appropriate, you know, accountability or checks or, or review. I think a practical example of, you know, the old way of doing things and, and our current way is our Escanaba clinic. In the past, uh, Jules Blank and I each had our own day. I was every Tuesday. He was every Thursday. The patient was either a Tuesday day or a Thursday day. They didn't really cross paths. Um, I did things my way. He did things his way. Now, since Brian's coming up with growth, um, that's not practical. So we, we go a week at a time. So we share all the patients. We review each other's work. And I'd say over the last five years, our practices have changed. They've kind of met in the middle at times. We've question and pushed each other on certain aspects. And I think we both learned and grown from it. I don't it's positive. I don't think most of us are too shy about giving each other feedback either in the moment or after the fact. Yes. I've cool. certainly been the recipient of feedback and I'm not shy about giving it. I think that's one of our strengths. Well what's nice about Matthew and I's relationship and providing care is well we both have similar backgrounds, grew up in similar areas, went to similar colleges, went to similar medical schools. We even trained at the Mayo Clinic together. Um, so we approach medicine in a similar way, but regularly when we're talking about a new treatment plan for a patient, um, he said, he tells me, well, did you think about this or how about this treatment? And it's not very uncommon for us to change the plan after just having a couple minute conversation, even though we both treat patients very, very similarly. Is that what 
other forms of multidisciplinary care like tumor boards and, and IRBs are really trying to get at, but, but you know, maybe about two or three steps removed. Everyone's going to agree to come together once a week or once a month or something like that, and review cases. You know, I mean, is this perhaps a more ideal version of that? Yeah. I, I mean, I think those are important, especially at what we call, you know, important inflection points where uh, big treatment decisions are being made, but that doesn't really work in real time. So, you know, sharing patients and reviewing each other's work on a week by week basis um, adds a lot of value. I've often said medicine is a lot like trying to see the Rocky Mountains from the ground as a single person. This is just more than one person can see. You need you need a lot of people to be able to comprehend the entire expanse of the thing. It's gigantic. Okay, so maybe multiple providers is better, intellectually better, medically better, quality wise better. What about how it feels for the patients? What about that need for an emotional bond with a single provider? Patients want my doctor. How does a team be my doctor? How do we meet that need for people? How important is that need? Yeah, I, I think there's no doubt, you know, that initial consult when someone's in a deep crisis and you're the doctor that's setting the problem and making things happen and setting a plan of care that even within one visit, a deep emotional bond is developing. Where does that bond come from? I mean, people talk about the, the bond with their physician. Is, it, is that something that forms over time and is based on cultivated trust and judicious review of the care that's been given in, in a critical way? Is this about quality of care or is this a form of emotional imprinting? It's human connection. I mean, people mm -hmm. come to us most oftentimes at the most vulnerable place they've been in their life. And we spend the time with them and mm -hmm. help them navigate it. And the, the fear of the unknown is what people are dealing with and when they're at their most vulnerable state. And we tell them what we know about what's going on, educate them about it and start to put together a plan. Mm -hmm. And just being with them for that hour, or hour and a half for 45 minutes, however long it is, and investing in that relationship, boy, you form some bonds pretty quickly. And Matthew, you said that earlier too, that bond with, with the patient, that emotional imprinting, if that's what it is, how fast does that form? Yeah, it can happen right away. Mm -hmm. um, but that's not the same as a long-term relationship. Right. So um, for the reasons we've already spoken, it's, it's not practical that that same person is going to be there on the second, third, fourth, fifth visits. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, an area we can get better is preparing the way, explaining the team from the beginning, you know, even meeting other team members if they happen to be available and planning ahead. Here's the next couple steps. Here's who you're going to see and emphasizing again, that collaborative care that even if I'm not physically seeing you, mm -hmm. I've set an initial plan. My partner colleague will review it. We'll, you know, we'll work on it together and um, the imprint can be with the team, you know, not just with the individual. So how do we do that? I mean, if, if a person, if a patient can imprint on a physician quickly, sometimes after the first visit, is there any reason to believe it couldn't also happen with the other members of the team? So I really think it's how we set the expectations the very first time the patient walks in the door. If we set one expectation, we deliver something else, they're going to be disappointed no matter what those two things are. If you set consistent expectations and you're able to deliver that, then satisfaction improves and people get used to this change in paradigm when people are coming in to see the doctor. What do you tell people uh, at first visit uh, to help acquaint them that their care is going to be shared with a, a team and not just an individual? I tell patients when we're wrapping up the visit, I tell them there's 
two more things I'd like to tell you. Number one, gone are the days when somebody can expect to come in and see the same cancer doctor every single time. Believe it or not, we have days off and vacations. And with our group, we also have responsibilities across multiple health systems in the area. Knowing that we do our best to work as a team, and if I didn't fully trust all of our team members that take great care of our patients, I just wouldn't work here. And I think there's also something to be said for multiple people laying eyes on you, talking to you, and trying to improve your care. It's hard to argue with any of that. No one should carry the burden of cancer alone. A cancer diagnosis can make you and your loved ones feel isolated and alone, just when you need support the most. I'm Addison Young. And I'm Tom Beckers. As social workers at Green Bay Oncology, we know that meaningful connection brings strength and healing. Sharing the experience in a safe space with others on a similar path is often powerful and therapeutic. That's why we offer a free monthly virtual cancer support group facilitated for you and your loved ones. Wherever you are on your cancer journey, you're always welcome. To join us, visit gboncology.com events. Besides careful communication, a team caring for a single patient also needs to be working from the same playbook. Here's Matthew to explain how Green Bay Oncology's standardized care plans are an important part of team-based practice. Yeah, I think that's very important to a group practice. For our listeners that may not be familiar, what do we mean when we say standardized care plans? So uh, I'll start with some examples. There are many situations in oncology where with a certain stage and disease type, what we call the standard of care, the best supported care by past evidence is well known and really is the same throughout the country. So when those obvious situations that everyone should agree that this is the best treatment. There's also the other end where maybe there's three or four treatments, and usually because they don't work as well as, say, a standard option that doesn't have choices, you can choose between those three or four. One maybe has less side effects, uh, less cost, a better schedule, and reasonable people can discuss the pros and cons of those. But in general, we should support maybe one or two. Do one you know, in older patients and two in younger patients for these reasons. We have those discussions up front as a group. We push each other. When we want to make positive changes, we'll go to the person in charge of that treatment plan. Once that's done, you know, all the evidence is reviewed, make sure that it's truly standard of care, that it meets national guidelines. Our pharmacists are involved. They make sure that the doses and the schedule are correct. What we call prophylactic medicines to prevent infection or other side effects. There's guidelines for those that's rigorously reviewed. We do all that work up front so that on a given day, we don't have to remember, oh yeah, I need to do Bactrim three times a week in this situation. So we put a lot of intellectual effort up front to create these pathways that say for a given tumor type in a given situation, you know, this is our playbook. This is the best path. I was just going to say that it sounds a lot like, you know, a, a playbook for a football team like the Packers. It, you know, the, the, the team drills a particular play. They understand how, it, how it's going to work. The, the, the play is developed based on strategy, on film review, on, you know, leading thought. Um, and then you practice it. And so that everybody knows what it means when that play comes up and everybody at every step in the chain can can make that play work. Yep. The pharmacist is familiar, the nurse is. So if you're deviating or you left something out, they'll question you. Mm -hmm. Hey, why didn't you do that? Maybe because I forgot, or maybe there's something unique about the patient's 
care that I need to communicate to everyone that we're doing it slightly different this way. And Brian, I know you're deeply involved in developing pathways and in optimizing them and have been for years. Any thoughts about that approach? Well, when Matthew was talking about that, the example I was thinking of, Mitch, was manufacturing. You know, manufacturers, they have standard operating procedures for just about everything they do. Now, the practice of medicine is nuanced and complicated, and we can't have a standard operating practice for every single patient, for every single treatment, but we can standardize a lot of it. And we can agree on certain principles. And, you know, if you have 10 patients with a certain condition and you have 10 doctors all doing things a different way, well, that impacts everybody in that clinic. And nobody's as familiar with what they're doing as if all 10 of those doctors agreed to do something the same way. That just multiplies throughout the care team to the the medical assistants, to the patient service representatives, to the pharmacists, to to the nurse practitioners, to the nurses. If you do the same thing again and again and again, we're going to be better at it. So having a standard care plan for similar types of cancer helps a team work in sync. But how does a team share the same essential information about a patient's history? Brian talked about how clinical notes have become even more important than ever. I've been thinking about this a little bit the past few days as some of our founders have been in chatting with them. You know, when I first came to the practice, notes were completely different. And I would take over a, a patient's care from a retiring partner, and sometimes it would be three, four lines. When I started 14 years ago, uh, if he was gone for a week, often care just kind of halted, even if decisions needed to be made. No mm-hmm. one was really willing to change the path, and so people would just sit until their primary doctor returned in two weeks. Our documentation today serves more purposes than it did 20 years ago. Um, there's electronic access. When I sign my note, the patient can see it in the chart. Mm-hmm. So patients can go and review everything that we put in the note and say that we talked to them that day. And it's an educational document for them. And it's very common that they'll be looking at these things, trying to understand and remember what we talked about. So not only are we communicating with it between each other and the rest of the care team, we're also communicating directly with the patient now that they have availability of that record in real time on a handheld device or their computer. But I really think one of the best things that's happened in medicine the past 20 years has been patients to have electronic access to their records in real time. It's about accountability, and it also decreases the chance of errors. There's some chance that your doctor will not see a test that was significant that needs to be addressed today. And because you're very interested in your own care, you see that result, boy, that that decreases the chances of bad things happening to that patient because they have access. It also holds us accountable. If we say one thing in our note, but that's not what the patient said, They're looking at that note and calling us and telling us and making sure that we're on the same page. So I think that over time, that's just going to improve care considerably. And there's, I probably shouldn't get on this soapbox, but there are those out there that argue and argue and argue that we should control the information that goes to our patients. So they don't have to read about a new cancer or a new diagnosis or a new piece of information when their results came through, because we should be protecting them from getting that information. That's a bunch of baloney. That patient, that's theirs. They own it. What are the pieces of a clinical note that are most critical to be carried forward? And I know this is something that's still a work in progress and, and, you know, always in need of refinement. But what are the most critical pieces for a note that that are carried forward and are easy to reference for the next person up? I think we 
referenced how medicine was 20, 30 years ago. And and if I look at my own notes from 10 years ago and five years ago, I, I am proud that we continue to improve our clinical notes over time to be more thorough. Uh, we need to include the diagnosis, the date of diagnosis, past treatments, past important events, you know, why medicine was stopped, if it was for progression or serious side effects. Uh, that all needs to be readily available. And then, you know, there's kind of the practical part of the note, the recent history and the current exam. But then the meat is in medical terms, the assessment and plan, but but that's the current problem list and what you're going to do about each one of them. Mm-hmm. And using electronic medical records to enhance our care, enhance our memory of things, to not miss small details. Uh, that's exactly one of the advantages of current technology. And maybe start mapping out what you might do next. Exactly. So standardizing notes as much as possible and continuing to standardize and improve notes so that they're an efficient communication tool for the next person up uh, and as a communication tool for the patient. But no matter how good and thorough we make our notes and care plans, the team approach can't work unless everyone on the team understands their role, is trained to perform it, and believes in the strategy. Matthew and Brian next explore the steps we've taken with APP training to prepare them for this style of work. You know, things are changing. The workforce is changing. As the needs of our communities and, and our patients increase, there's a certain number of medical trained medical oncologists out there that really hasn't changed much over time. Um, well, with newer, better, and more effective and less toxic treatments, when patients start living a lot longer with certain diseases, um, they need medical care and they oftentimes will need very frequent visits. So the number of visits that we need per given community per year goes up every year. So our number of visits, the number of patients we need to see has gone up considerably from year to year. And the supply of medical oncologists coming out of training that are well-trained that are equipped to handle this um, has not changed as rapidly. So just to meet the care of our community, we need to do different things with the workforce and the way in which we can fill that gap most effectively right now and moving into the future is nurse practitioners and physician assistants playing a lot of that role. And as a physician now, it's it's not going to be good enough just to see a list of your patients every day. It, you're a mentor, you're a team manager, you're an educator that you're responsible for, again, the education and mentorship of a team of nurse practitioners to allow myself to provide care for instead of 15 or 20 patients on my list, but 50, 60, 70, 80 patients for a team of people to make sure that they get the best care possible. And providing real-time support in the middle of the day to all of them. It's quite, I think today I received a call from, I think, five different facilities with nurse practitioners or support of their physicians at those facilities. So it's about care extending, not not limiting care to what a single person can do, but extending our reach with a team, with others and taking care of, you know, helping other hands deliver care and other places deliver care. I can have a bigger impact on more people by managing that team and investing in that team. Whether you're directly interacting with the patients or not. We've referenced the team all throughout this podcast, but the team uh, clearly includes nurse practitioners, 
physician assistants, investing them. We're, we're blessed at Green Bay Oncology with a very talented, caring group of advanced practice providers. So a nurse practitioner that may be early in her career after doing a couple of years of something else, um, we need to prepare them and educate them. And we have a structured and rigorous program through which we gradually coax them along to be comfortable and to be prepared to provide the type of care that we expect in our clinic. Whatever advantages a multiple provider system might have, it has one big hurdle to overcome. How do we make it feel more consistent and reassuring for patients? Yeah, so one thing on the provider end is just pausing and no matter how busy we are, how many distractions we're having, maybe how difficult the appointment immediately prior was, is pausing taking a deep breath and giving your full attention to your next patient. That means reviewing the medical record, reviewing why they're there, reviewing all their recent test results, and then going in and giving them the time that they deserve. When we're running behind, you can't just run into the next room unprepared, trying to catch up on someone else's time. Mm-hmm. By Spending that time knowing the results, knowing what the plan of care is, you're not going to give up that sense that you don't know what you're talking about because Dr. Burnett ordered this CAT scan that you didn't even know existed. One of the things I try to do with patients that I am seeing for the first time, you know, I may may be the only time I see them and I'm the next person up for that particular day is I try within the first 45 seconds that I walk in the room to demonstrate to them that I'm familiar with their case, that I took the time to review their case, that that care that started in other people's hands that I have been trusted with for this one encounter is going to be continuous and consistent with what they you know received before. And it's, it's not a difficult thing to do, but it requires exactly what you just described, Matthew. You can't go into the room cold. You can't go into people and say, so nice to meet you. Tell me your story. It has to be you have to do your homework. You have to be prepared. You have to know the history. You have to know pressing problems and why they're there. And you have to be able to show them that. Trust seems to come a lot easier when we take the effort to do that. And I don't think it's actually tremendously difficult. It just takes time and dedication. And I think, you know, there are limits to um, this team-based model. We can't have a patient come in and see 10 different providers for their first 10 visits and expect them to be satisfied. We also can't have one provider seeing that patient for those first 10 visits. Mm-hmm. So there's some sort of balance there where is that two or three providers that are caring for that patient? So you aren't seeing somebody different every day, but we're also having the collaboration and oversight and challenging each other to improve that care. There probably is a sweet spot. And, you know, depending on the case, I mean, I'm sure you're right. There's There's got to be a sweet spot. You know, I know one of the things that David Redolution does uh, all the time is when he's seeing a patient that is new to him, but not new to the practice, he will make an effort to communicate with the last provider that saw them. And one of the first things he'll say to the patient is, so I spoke with Dr. X or Dr. Y about your case. The other thing that he will do at the end of the visit is say, well, I'll make sure that Dr. Y or Dr. Z is informed of what took place here today. He's demonstrating that communication and collaboration are ongoing and it's all part of a continuous effort in concert. And I think that's probably valuable as well. Yeah, I agree. 
even when it's my own patient that I've been following for quite some time, it's very frequent that I'll say, you know, ma'am, Dr. Ryan and I and our other providers here mm-hmm. were talking about you, and this is what our thoughts are. Green Bay Oncology, the second opinion comes standard. Are there ways for us when a change is necessary? If we're cross-covering on a patient, for instance, or we're seeing somebody on, say, their sixth dose of weekly taxol, and we've, we've never met them before, and today's their day that the white count's too low to treat, for instance. They've never met us before, and we're going to be the one delaying treatment that week. And I'm sure that must feel very jarring to patients. I wonder if there are ways to lessen the impact of that or to lessen the disruption of that. I mean, medically for us, this is a common occurrence and the stakes are not very high. It's you know, it's part of the standard procedure. I think for patients, the emotional stakes of that can probably be pretty high sometimes. I just wonder, how do we make the patient also feel that trust? Whether it's a patient I've been seeing for years or somebody that I just met the first time, when there's a delay in treatment or an abrupt change, the way in which you communicate it and the way in which you educate the patient about it matters. You know, if somebody has a delay in their chemotherapy because they're low, their blood counts are low. You know, I talk to them and I say, this happens. This is part of giving chemotherapy. We know the body handles medications differently. When somebody has a low blood count or some other problem with treatment, just the very nature of chemotherapy dosing and scheduling needs to be dynamic and subject to change so we can personalize your treatment to you over time. I recommend that the correct thing today to do is to not give your treatment, to delay it. And I know that Dr. X, the doctor you are familiar with, were he here today, would recommend the same. Yeah, there's education. You're doing Mm -hmm. it for a reason. Mm -hmm. Uh, Risk of infection, risk of bleeding. Mm -hmm. I think spending that extra time to educate why you're making a dose reduction, a dose delay, that actually usually takes care of the issue. Communication, communication, communication. That that's, would seem to be the key to you know emotional support for a lot of these things. And we talked about APPs and, and nurse practitioners and physicians assistants and you know how lucky we are to have a dedicated team of people of, of quality that helps support this effort. And that, that, that's true for all the people in our organization. We we're, work with a remarkable and dedicated group of people who, you know, the, the nurses, the front office personnel, the desk personnel, the medical assistants, the lab personnel, all of these people. And they're all really invested in the quality of the care that we provide. And, you know, patients are not the only ones that have strong feelings and ideas about what kind of care is best. You know, many of our staff are most familiar with one doctor, one patient. Sometimes I think they struggle with the idea of team-based care as, as somehow being suboptimal. What would you say to them? Well, that's society. That's what we've um, trained society to believe in the movies and television, like in books. It's one doctor, one patient. And people that work with us in clinic, they're in that community too that has been trained to view things in that model. So change is difficult. Educating patients, educating staff, educating ourselves. Um, Change is difficult. And we need to work hard every day to make sure that we're able to meet the needs of our communities by working in such a team-based model. It's hard to see how the system could work without their support and their belief in it. One doctor, one patient goes deep. You know, it's a strong belief. Every person who works in our clinic, whether they're desk staff, office staff, medical assistant, physician, lab staff, has a role to play in how our patients experience their care and how it's communicated. It's not just the providers. And we can all do more to promote confidence in the multiple provider system. I think there are three easy ways that that our staff can help us make this care 
feel as high quality for the patients as we intend it to. The first would be to begin with belief. Nothing reassures patients and nothing convinces patients like sincerity. Understanding the need for multiple providers first and foremost, and the good it brings does a lot of the heavy lifting. And, you know, if you're listening to this podcast right now, you've already done a lot to begin thinking and and asking yourself and saying, you know what, maybe there's more than one way to give good care. Multiple providers is reality. It's good care and there is nothing wrong with it. Begin with belief. The second thing is pivot to the positive. Patients, particularly patients that are new to the clinic, who are familiar with their experiences in primary care, are going to come here. They're going to find it unfamiliar. You know, it may seem like a terrible idea to them or somehow substandard. And it's okay to validate their disappointment. You know, I know your provider would love to see you today if she could, but having a solid team makes it possible for you to be seen anytime you want, you know, or anytime you need to be seen. We have to pivot to the positive when people express concerns. We have to help them understand, you know, and I think the third, and this is more of a refinement, avoid apologizing for the system, over explaining explanation and apology. Apology is what we do when we've done something wrong, but there is nothing wrong with giving patients access to a well-trained team of many providers. And you think, well, explaining things, we, we can explain the system. But if we want to over-explain and say, well, you know, Dr. X is in outreach clinic today and then off tomorrow and then we'll be having a colonoscopy next week and they're gone a lot and it's very hard to get you in to see them. Does that actually help people feel better? I don't think it probably does. Even if it's true, you know, a simple Dr. X is not available, but Dr. Y is, and they are very, very good and will be familiar with your case is perfectly sufficient. So begin with belief, pivot to the positive avoid over-apologizing or over-explaining. Any additional thoughts, Brian, Matthew? Well, I mean, we can talk on and on about a team-based approach from a provider perspective or a physician perspective, but there's no team without the other team members. And that's not just physicians and nurse practitioners, physician assistants. That's everybody that works in our clinic. Mm -hmm. And if we truly want to have a highly effective team, we need buy-in. We need to educate people and and set expectations with all of the people within our clinic and outside our clinic. Mm -hmm. This is how it is. And we can change, we can be better, and you can help us optimize this process, but you need to be all in with us. I agree completely. Well said to both of you. Matthew, Brian, great having you on the show today. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you. It's been great. Thanks for joining us on Cancer Covered. Please let us know what you think by leaving a review. To learn more, read our blog, request an appointment, search available clinical trials, or even apply to become a member of the team, go to gboncology.com.